Tu amor no puedo expresar Te seguiré por la eternidad En tu gracia caminaré En libertad siempre viviré Si sí, en ti, en ti, en ti Soy libre, sé everyone or good afternoon. My name is Pastor Jared. I'm the young adult pastor here at the church and we're thankful to have you with us. And what you just saw is uh, uh, some clips from a trip that we took a couple weeks ago. Uh, 17 of our young adults went to Guatemala where we served for a week with, uh, with an organization there working with a local church. Uh, we also worked with an orphanage where all the kids there were affected by HIV. And, uh, and we also helped do a construction project with a ministry that is working towards counseling and changing the lives of young girls who are victims of sexual abuse. And, and so we got to spend a week there doing construction and building and hanging out with kids and um, going to the community of Guatemala and meeting people. And it was an amazing time. And we want to share a little bit about what God did on that trip with you. So I've got some young adults here who are part of that trip. Would you guys give it up for them as they make their way up on stage? I've got the privilege and honor of serving these guys and, and getting to hang out with them, and it was a great week. So first up, we've got my man, Ryan, um, who's going to start us off and share a little bit about what God did. Awesome. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Ryan. Um, I'm a youth leader at uh, BYC and a uh, uh, young adult youth leader at uh, Jared's Church. Um, it was truly an amazing week, and I saw God uh, kind of work in a way that I never saw like you know happen before. And before this trip, I truly was kind of, like, nervous, a little bit um, confused and worried about what to expect, what to, um, you know, uh, to do at, during my, uh, bless you, and uh, during my trip in Guatemala. And honestly, it was just awesome to see God just show me that um, despite all, like, all my mistakes, all my, um, just everything, every, like, kind of, thing that was on my heart, he just kind of wiped that away. He told me to forget about, all about that and serve these children, just be on the, with these children's hearts. 
And it was, just, and I just got me confused. Like, God, why would you use me? You know, with all my sins, all my, just my past and everything. And he just told me, just forget it. You know, that pain is gone. I already healed it. Now I need you now to heal these children. I need you to be something bigger with these children, for these children, even for the community. I actually did, we actually did home visits and I had the privilege and the chance to um, share my testimony to um, two families on, you know, two different days. And it was just awesome to see like how my testimony touched their hearts and related to what they're struggling and just a chance for me to pray for them. So it was awesome to see, yeah. Next up, we have Gabby. If you didn't know, Gabby serves as the overseer of our early childhood ministry. So if you've got little ones, she makes sure they're safe and taken care of. So would you guys give it up for Gabby? Hey, everyone. Good afternoon. So uh, this was actually my second year going to Guatemala. We went as a mission trip last year as well. And last year was really cool because we got to start something really awesome over there. We started building up the church walls that were there, and this year we got to go back, and as you saw, we got to paint those walls that uh, we started making over there, and I think one of the coolest things about this trip, like Orion was saying, is just, like, seeing how much God really can use people, and, like, not even just how much he uses people, but, like, God can use anyone. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what situation you're in. It doesn't matter how skilled you are or how great of a speaker you are or great of a singer you are. Like, it doesn't matter when it comes to God and building his kingdom. Like, he will use you however he chooses to use you. And I think that is so amazing, just, like, being able to go to another country where they're so much less fortunate than you are. Like, you here in New York especially, like, we have so much, and we take it all for granted, especially knowing like that we are surrounded by all these amazing things and we get to just go to this place where all these people don't have as much as we do. They don't have, you know, like all of the expensive luxuries and the ability to just be able to travel to one of the greatest cities in the world whenever we feel like it, but they still have the same gospel that we do and they still can have the same joy or the same peace or if not more because they understand the gospel. So I think that being able to go over there and being able to spread that gospel and spread the love that we were able to over there is just like amazing beyond belief because we are able to instill that joy and instill that peace. And even though sometimes we don't feel it ourselves, it's a reminder that no matter what we have, what situation we're in, what we can do, what we can't do, like God can still give us that peace because he's the only source of it. It doesn't come from our money. It doesn't come from our comfort. It doesn't come from the people around us. It comes only from God, the truest, most pure form of joy and peace. And just going there and being able to find that and feel that, even though you're in a place where you don't have Wi-Fi and you don't have access to all the cool things that you normally do, like having that peace and that love and that joy and being able to spread it out and give it to all the kids and all of the families in the community, it's just an amazing thing. Awesome. Next up, we have Chris, and uh, Chris serves our young adult ministry and does so much. So, Chris, take it away. Thank you. Like Jared said, my name is Chris. Um, ooh, sorry. <laughs> um, like Gabby said, we were able to go to Guatemala last year. I was on the team with Gabby and Jared, and um, that was this this mission trip. This was my seventh mission trip. Um, I have a great calling on my heart to go into missions. Absolutely love just going around the world and just spreading the gospel in that sense and everything. Um, 
Guatemala was definitely a place I went last year. It was just, from the second I was there, I'm like, all right, I'm coming back. Like, it's just, it was, I knew it already. I think it was because they had this green sauce that we put on every meal. It was this hot sauce. It was amazing. She knows. There we go. It was, no. Um, it was just really cool to go back to a place where last year you started so many construction projects to see, to see how the orphanage and stuff would be able to benefit from it, to be able to see how they would use it to help these kids, um, to teach them more in school academically, to help them learn about God more and everything. It was really cool. Jared and I last year, we started building like a shed or like some type of just a separate building at the orphanage. It was really cool to go back this year and see it completely finished and see it now being used for its main purpose to further the knowledge and to help the kids grow in that orphanage. So that was just a really cool thing to see God work through them, to see people from the community continuing to come to the church, to come back a year later. You know, it's, when we come back from mission strip, we don't, we don't really have connection to know how they're doing and everything. It's very hard to stay connected with them, especially when you don't speak and understand their language. So it's very hard. So to come back a year later and to see them still worshiping and to see what's going on and to see them, <laughs> to see them still worshiping and see them still chasing God and everything. And then they're bringing their families and new people. It's, it's mind blowing. It's incredible. All right. Last up we have Josh. And if you didn't know this guy, he was playing drums this morning. So he deserves a little special something. Hi guys, so yeah, my name is Jaws. Also, if you didn't know, I'm Pastor Henry's son. Um, just throwing that out there. Um, <laughs> so, going, uh, I was basically raised in this church. Like, I joke around and tell everybody I was born on this platform, like right here. So, like, <laughs> so um, I pretty much for this, my expectation for this trip was pretty much the usual. Like, I know we're going to a poor country. Like, I know we're going to like work and help these people out and give them the love of God that we, as best we can. So like even on like commercials, like you know, you see like the kids with the flies around their face, like I'm like, I got you, I'm gonna swat them for you or something like that. So um, I was like ready to go there, I was so excited and it was my first missions trip outside of the country too. So um, this trip was actually the first time that I've had my first ex uh, encounter with God. So um, it was on the Wednesday and um, we were worshiping and the song was uh, What a Beautiful Name It Is. And like, as you know, I play drums. So I like, I know all the songs. I know them inside and out. Like I know how to play them in my sleep. So I actually took the time. I was like, uh, let me actually like listen to the words and let me actually try and like understand the message of like what's in this song. And so um, I did that and um, I started hearing a voice like say, worship me, worship me. So I'm like, I'm assuming it's God because no one else is gonna tell me to worship them. So I'm like, Okay, so I'm like, uh, let me let me just keep doing how I normally do. And then it just started getting louder and louder. It's just like, worship me, worship me. And I'm like, all right, let me try this. So I closed my eyes and I raised my hand and I started worshiping and I started just bawling. And for those of you who don't know, I hate crying. That's one of my biggest pet peeves. Like, if you cry, it's all right. I'll support you. I'll be there. And you can cry on my shoulder. But me, I hate crying. Like, I won't cry for myself. So, so that was like a very emotional moment for me. I had to like step away and like catch myself because I was like, whoa, this is like way too much. And like throughout the week, it's just like con like coincidence after the next. I'm just like, all right, I get, I get it, God. I think you're trying to talk to me. So that's where I'm at right now. 
Can we get up for these guys one more time? Thank you. There are just a few. There were 17 of them, 17 of us who went on the trip, and it was an amazing time. And some of you even gave financially to support them for going. So thank you so much if you did, and we appreciate the prayers. And um, if you're a young adult, we'd love to see you come get involved with us and all that God's doing in the young adult ministry. And I'm honored this morning, uh, this afternoon, that Pastor Steve gave me the opportunity to speak to you. Uh, this is our third service, and sometimes I forget how hard it is to preach three times in a row. And I'm 32, Pastor Steve's 35, so it must, it must really be hard for him. So I think we deserve to give him a little shout today, because he does this every week. So, and at 35 years old, it's amazing, it's amazing. I'm excited this, today to talk about the call. And I was thinking as I was preparing for my message, I was thinking about those moments in life when you really feel a call or burden, right? Like for me, it was when I found out I was going to be a father. And if you've, if you've been a father or parent, you know you start getting excited, right? When it's the first one, you're like thinking about, you're thinking about what it's going to be like. And, and I remember imagining myself like playing sports with my kids and wrestling with my kids and and, uh, and running around, and, and, and for the nine months where, when, when my wife was pregnant, like, I remember going to all the baby stores, and if some of you, you know this experience, right? You go in, especially once you're first, like, you've got to have every contraption that exists, and most of them are absolutely ridiculous, right? It's like a pacifier that also converts into a diaper bag, or like, you're like, yes, we absolutely need this. You know, and you also don't want to mess with a pregnant lady, so whatever your wife says, you're like, yeah, I think so, you know, and it's, it's like a stroller that also turns into an RV that can feed oxygen to the baby just in case there's like some sort of a, a you know, a nuclear fallout or a zombie apocalypse or something crazy, you're good to go. And, and I remember just going through, it's like, yeah, we need that, oh, absolutely, you know, we're just excited, there's just this excitement about it, you know, and, um, but what I, what I found is, there's something different between when you first start thinking about the call to be a parent until the moment right before you actually become a parent. And I thought I was ready for childbirth because I seen movies. And in the movies, like, the women, you know, they, they show up and they, they've got makeup on. They look great. And then, like, a couple minutes later, there's a couple pushes and... And, and there's the baby. It's like, wow, that's awesome. You know what I mean? And then they're, they're going home. They're back to work. Like, it's, it's wow, that's, that's beautiful. I, I didn't realize my wife was in labor for 36 hours. So I was like, okay, this is a little longer than the movies, right? And, and at about hour 30, we're in the hospital, and I'm sitting in the, it's 3 in the morning. We're in the, in the delivery room, and my wife turns to me at one point and literally says, this is your fault. And I was like, babe, I know, we're both struggling here, okay? You're dealing with that, I'm dealing with you, like we're both, we both have a battle here, I understand, you know? I'm just kidding, I did not say that, um, I was smarter than that, okay? But later on, things get worse and worse, the pain's getting a little worse, her contractions are getting closer and closer, and, and things start to escalate, and this is where the, uh, the allure of the call started to wear off even more. She looks at me, and she was like, never again, never again. And then she says the words that struck fear in my heart. She said, you're getting fixed. I was like, listen, I know you're emotional, but I, you're making me feel like a backyard dog here. Like, I don't... And what really scared me is we were already in a hospital, okay? So half the battle has already been done, and there's doctors around who can do this, and I'm like, 
these doctors, you know, a woman who's about to give birth is a very scary thing. She could convince these doctors to do something, you know, next thing I know I'm going to be drugged and put into a back room and wake up and be in as much pain as her. And so I was, I was fearful. At that moment, the initial appeal of the call to be a dad kind of wore off. But then you have the baby, right, and all that changes, and it's like, this is amazing. And, and, uh, and, and this, today, as I was thinking about this, I, I kind of wanted to talk to you today about the ultimate call, right? The beautiful call that comes from God. And we're going to look in the Bible in a story in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. It's a story of a guy named Elisha who receives a call from God. And today as we read this text, I believe that God is going to show us some things. In fact, there's three things I think we can learn today about the call of God. And my hope is that it transforms your heart and your life and God will speak to you today. And the three things are this. The necessity of the call, the cost of the call, and the ability to fulfill the call the necessity, we all need a call from God. We need a call from God. The, the cost, there's a cost to fulfill his call. And lastly, the ability. How do we do it? How do we live it out? So I'm going to read in 1 Kings, if you've got your Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 19 through 21. And then we're going to read 2 Kings chapter 2, 9 through 12. I'm going to read it. We're going to pray. And then we're going to jump in. If you're with me, let me hear you say, Booyah. Okay, it's a little better than the first audience, not as good as the second, but you guys will get there. That's all right. Here's what it says, First Kings. It says, so he departed from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. And Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen, and he sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then they arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Now we're going to jump forward about 18 years in the story. This is 2 Kings chapter 2, 9-12. through 12. It says, when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you. And if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up in a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him. No more. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity today to be here, to be with you, to open up your word, to, uh, to celebrate what God has done in our young adults and around the world, to, to worship you in music. And I pray today that as we open up your word, that you would challenge us today, that you would remind us that you've got a calling for us. You've got a purpose and a plan for our life. You have something special for us. And I pray that our hearts would desire to live that out, to fulfill that, that we would be willing to give up all that we need to give up, God, and, and that all of who we are would rest in you. Help us love Jesus more today and be changed by him. In your name we pray. Everybody said amen. amen. All right. So the necessity of the call, the necessity of the call. This story uh, starts off. 
and there's this character, Elijah. And Elijah's a prophet over Israel. And, and if you don't know a little bit of background in 1 Kings, right, Elijah's running around. And he's, he is, uh, he's had a tough time. He's been through some challenges. Some of you remember the story of Elijah going against the prophets of Baal, right, where they, they're doing their thing. And he calls down fire and, and consumes uh, his sacrifice. And, and he's, kind of, um, he's kind of upset. He's kind of uneasy about the state of Israel and the love that people have for God. And God's trying to remind him that there is still a remnant of people that love God and are serving him. And, and in the midst of all this, he comes uh, across a man named Elisha. And God calls him to cast his cloak upon Elisha, which was symbolic for saying, you're going to be the next prophet. It was God's calling of Elisha. And, and he comes across Elijah, and Elijah is plowing in these fields. He's, he's a farmer, right? He's, he's plowing in these fields, and he comes across him. He casts his cloak on him, and Elisha follows him and says, Can I go back, kiss my family? He says, Go ahead, you know, and then he comes back and eventually follows him. And for 18 years, he follows Elijah around as his assistant until finally the moment comes where God um, brings Elijah up to heaven, and Elisha is left there. And sure enough, gets the Holy Spirit falls upon him, and he becomes the next prophet over the nation of Israel. It's a story of calling. And this morning, as we look at this story, I really find it interesting that uh, I think most people in life, if they're honest, want to live a life of meaning and purpose. Right? Like, like when you get to the end of your life, you want to know that what you did in life, that your life had meaning and purpose and value. And I think it's one of the ways that we make it through all of the mundane, not fun stuff in our life that we all have to do, right? That saying that it's like, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life, that's not true, come on. Even when you do what you love, there's a whole lot of work involved there, right? You still gotta do stuff you don't wanna do. Nobody likes filing taxes, am I right? So we, this, this idea of how we get through our day, how we, we, we wanna know that our life has value, it has meaning, it has purpose, that it's bigger than just us, right? We're contributing to something bigger than our own story. And I think what's interesting is that for most people in the world, they create their own meaning and purpose. It's a completely subjective thing, meaning it's their own opinion, right? Objective meaning it's outside of their opinion. Subjective meaning they just decide it. And everybody in the world kind of does this. They just decide, well, what's life really about? And if you were to go on the street and ask 100 people, hey, what's the meaning and purpose of life? You'd get 100 different answers, right? People would be like, well, it's about being a good person or, or uh, you know, providing for my family, getting a lot of wealth. It's about, it's about leaving the world a better place than when I found it, right? All these different answers of people just deciding however they feel, whatever they think the meaning and purpose of life is, and then they live their life trying to do that. And in reality, I think this is how people actually are able to exist in the mundane, difficult situations in life. Because they convince themselves, this is what life is about, and as long as I do this, then I'm an okay person. So as long as I'm a better person than the really bad people, then I'm, then I'm good, I'm living a meaningful life. Or as long as my kids have this, or whatever. And so there's all this subjective, uh, this subjective defining of what life is about, and people live it, and no one ever really stops to ask, what is life really about? And I want to I point out to you how crazy that is. Anybody like basketball in here? Any basketball fans? Okay, a few of you. Imagine if we're playing basketball, right? And, and you're on my team, and we go out to play basketball, and, and we're getting ready, and you decide, you say, you know what, I, 
I don't. I, I know that people think that the meaning and purpose of being a good basketball player is about scoring baskets and playing defense and beating the other team. But I just don't feel that, like, in my heart. Like, I feel like the meaning of being a good basketball player is to just be really encouraging to people. So this whole, you know, I'm just going to encourage the mess out of people, you know. And so we're playing the game, right, and, and I pass you the ball, and you don't even try to catch it. It just goes out of bounds, and you're like, hey, that was really awesome. Like, I just want to encourage you. You're a great basketball player. And I'm like, are you serious? I'm about to kill you right now, you know. And, and, and you just, everybody, someone takes a jump shot. You're like, great shot, man. You look great in those shorts. You guys are awesome, you know. And you're, you are doing nothing to help the team win, but you're just encouraging everybody that comes along. And so inevitably, because it's now four against five, we get beat, right? We get beat bad. And we get to the end of the game, and everyone on the team looks at you, and you're like, you're the worst basketball player in the history of basketball, right? And you're looking back like, are you serious? You know, I, I mean, I think a great basketball player is someone who's really encouraging. That's, that's what I think the meaning and purpose of basketball is, right? And we would all look at you and go, that's insane. Because the meaning and purpose of a great basketball player is defined by the designer of the game. It's the person who made the rules, right? The one who says, here's the court, and here's how you win, here's how you lose, here's how it all works. And unless you submit yourself to those rules and understand the designer's intention, you cannot have meaning or purpose in the game of basketball. Now, if that's true of basketball, how much more true is that of life? Right? See, there's really only two options. Either there's no God, and if there is no God, then there is no real meaning or purpose. We are all just here by a, a, a random natural process of natural selection, right? This evolutionary process that we're here, but there's real no meaning or purpose. In fact, scientists will say one day all of us will be gone. The world will be destroyed. You and I have no more inherent value than a rock or an ant or any other species of animal, right? If there's no God, there's no meaning or purpose beyond just what you think it is. And a reality is one day there'll be no memory of you or anybody you love ever, if there is no God. But if there is a God, right, that means that there's a designer. There's somebody who actually made you. There's someone who made this world. And if you believe what the Bible tells us, it says not just that there's a designer, but there's someone who made you but knows you more intimately than anybody else. Like they know every part of you. They know your deepest, darkest thoughts, the things that you think about that you're like, I hope no one ever knows this because they will not love me anymore, right? They know you at your worst. He knows every aspect of who you are. And not only does he know you, but he loves you and he's created you for a purpose. He's created this, he has this plan, right? In Genesis to Revelation, it's this plan of redemption that God is redeeming. He's bringing his people back to him. And he not only has a plan, but he actually has a specific purpose for your life to be a part of his plan. Like he's made you to do something that nobody else can do. That's what Christianity says. So it says if there is a God, then there absolutely is a necessity that we understand what has he made me for. What's my calling? I love in this story, in verse 20, it says, And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elijah gets the call, right? And he runs after Elijah, and he goes, Hey, can I just go back? And Elijah says, Go ahead, for what have I done to you? And what he's saying there is he's going, this isn't my thing, bro. This is God, right? Like this isn't uh, Israel's next top prophet competition, right? Or like, 
He didn't take a survey of all the potential people in Israel and go, oh, let me see, let me find the youngest, smartest, handsomest uh, young men to take my place as a prophet. He was walking along, this is God's choice. He's going, this is God's call in your life. It has nothing to do with me. So why are you asking me, right? He's saying, this is from God. There is a necessity that you have a call from God in your life. I remember um, I grew up in the church. I remember when I was in middle school, I went to a summer camp similar to what our youth went to a couple weeks ago. And, and I, someone was preaching about the call, and I remember going up to the front. It, it was like an altar, kind of like this. And I remember praying, and, and I, I genuinely wanted to hear from God. And I remember for the first time in my life, I heard God speak to me. It wasn't an audible voice, right? But I just, you just, if you had that experience, you just know that it's the Lord. And, I, and, and he said to me, you're going to be a pastor someday. Now, like most of you probably had no idea what a pastor did. I was like, all right, they, they speak for about 30, 40, if it's a bad Sunday, 50 minutes, right? And then they probably go home and play Xbox and just hang out. Like, that's probably what pastors do. And so um, there was one problem, though. I was deathly afraid of speaking in front of people. Like, if my middle school self could, would see what I'm doing right now, he, I probably would have ran to the street in front of a bus. Like, I was that afraid. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Your worst fear is I'm going to call you up here right now and have you finish my sermon. And, and that was, but I was like, you know what, I, I, I'll figure out how to be a pastor that never speaks in front of people. And I figured I, I had time to figure this out because I was only in middle school. So I was like, all right, God, I'll do it. And as I got older in, in high school, and I, I was not a Christian at all. I totally, I totally really wanted nothing to do with God. I was going to church because my parents made me, but my, my life was about, was about drugs and sports and girls and getting people to like me, and that was it. And my senior year in high school, I did what every senior does, which I started to stress about what I was going to do with my life. And I would think about different options. And, and I love sports. I thought about maybe I'll go into sports and be a coach. And, or 9-11 or had just recently happened, so I thought maybe I'll go into the military or maybe I'll, uh, you know, maybe I'll be a police officer. And everything that I would think about doing with my life, I would just have this sinking feeling come over me. Like as if I knew if I, do, if I did that, I would be completely unhappy the rest of my life. And I, and I remembered, I remembered God calling me to be a pastor. And I still didn't know what pastors did, but I thought about that, that sense of maybe I should go to Bible college. And all of a sudden it was just this peace, like a peace that I couldn't explain that came over me. And I knew, like I knew I had to go to Bible college. And I wasn't even a Christian. I mean, two weeks before I left for Bible college, I was getting high, hooking up with girls and doing my own thing, right? And, 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 but I went, I just went because thankfully the sovereign grace of God was stronger than my stupidity. And I'm so thankful because I realized today if I had chosen something else, right, I would never have lived a life of meaning and purpose. There is a necessity to know the call of God in our lives. And church, man, that's what I want to share with you today. Like, do you understand if there is a God and he knows you and he's made you for something, you should want to know what that thing is. You should have a desire in your heart to go, there's nothing more important than me knowing what my call is. And before we move on, if you're sitting here and you're saying, well, I've never had that experience, right? I've never had like an Elisha experience or even what I had as a, as a middle schooler. It's gonna, you're going to be a pastor someday. Here's the cool thing. I think everybody has an individual call from God. And it's different. It doesn't mean you're going to be a pastor or a missionary. It may be that you're a teacher or an accountant, right, or a business owner. It, it's different for everybody. And I think everybody has an individual call. And if you've not received that, I want to encourage you to keep seeking that. Keep going after God to reveal to you what your individual call is. But the beauty of Christianity, right, is that when we become a believer in Jesus, you inherit a corporate call. 
So if you're a believer in Christ here today, no one can sit here and go, I don't know what my call is. Yes, as a believer in Jesus, your call is to go into the world and make disciples. Your call is to go reach people with the love of Jesus. Your call is to make this world a better place, to bring heaven to earth as Jesus prayed in the Lord's Prayer. Right? So how we love people, how we serve people, if you're a business owner, how you love and serve your employees and the people that you serve in the community. Can you imagine if business owners started to worry less about just making profit and more about actually making their communities better? Can you imagine if employees started loving and serving their bosses even if they weren't the nicest or the best or the greatest? Like, can you imagine what would happen if teachers genuinely cared for students, right, and gave all they had for that? Like, in every field, if we started living out the call that God placed on our life, we would transform this world. We have a call. There's a necessity to discover the call. And today I wonder, have you discovered it? The second thing is this, is the cost. Verse 21, it says, And he returned from following him and, looked, and took the yoke of oxen, and he sacrificed them, boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate. And they arose and went after Elijah and assisted them. So Elisha comes back, and he does something pretty powerful, right? He takes his 12 oxen, and he kills them. He breaks up the, uh, the plow, and he sacrifices them. He has this huge feast, this huge party. And this tells us some things about Elisha. And the first thing it tells us is he's incredibly wealthy. In that, in that culture, having 12 oxen was meant that you were one of the most wealthy people that lived. And the fact that he went back and killed it tells us he was the owner of them. He wasn't an employee of somebody else. In fact, most likely he had many employees that worked for him. So he is a wealthy business owner. And in that culture... The sign that God blessed you was that you had money. That's what they believed. And so uh, we also have indication, right, based on his response to God's calling and the fact that God chose him, that he, he seemed to love God. He seemed to have a heart for God. So, so Elisha is a good Israelite. He's a good, he's a good, if you want to put it in today's term, he's a good Christian, right? He's a good man of God. And he's also super wealthy. He's also super well off. So in the world standard, like anybody who would look at him, they would be like, yeah, you're doing something right here. Like, you've, you, you've got it. You're doing a great job. And in fact, you could argue he is already living out his call in so many ways. But all of a sudden, Elijah comes along, and he throws his cloak on him. From the very beginning, we get this, we get this picture that God is asking him to give some stuff up. Because the cloak of Elijah would have been incredibly disgusting and dirty. If you read the story of Elijah, he was not staying at the Hilton on the weekends. Like, this dude was going through some hard stuff, right? So this, this cloak is probably disgusting and stinky and smelly and, and ripped up. And, and he takes it and he throws it on the back of a wealthy guy who seems to have it all. And he says, come on, come follow me. It's time for your calling. God got some cool stuff in store. Furthermore, here's what was in store for Elijah. He spent 18 years following Elijah around. 18 years. This wasn't like, hey, come and, and right now you're going to be the dude. This was come and for your 10-year high school reunion, you're going to be telling people you're my assistant and you don't have a home, right? Like that was, the, that was the call that he was asking him to. There was a tremendous cost associated with the call of God in his life. He had to give up all that culture and society defined as great in order to pursue the call. One of my favorite books is called The Gospel Coach. And in this, he talks about the reality of the gospel in our lives and the reality of idolatry. And he says something pretty profound that I think is absolutely right on. He says, sin, when we think about sin, is not a behavior problem. It's, it's a worship problem. And the problem is that we worship idols. 
and behavior flows out of our worship, right? So what you love will then translate into what you do. And he says in this book, he says there's four main idols that every person in the world worships. Usually it's one main one, but you probably worship multiple ones. And the idols are this. Number one is power. And so these are people, you know, you probably know some of these people, right? That they find their value and worth in having power over others. Some of you work for these type of people or you work with them, right? And so they will do whatever it takes to kind of um, position themselves above others and, and gain authority above others. And they feel, they feel more alive when they have that. That's the power idol. For some, it's security. So they feel, they feel more value and worth when they have security, when they feel safe, right? So maybe through a bank account. The higher your number is on the little screen, right? Like my wife, this is hers, right? So the higher your bank account is, the more it's like, oh, oh, I feel so safe now, you know? Or it could be in a relationship. Some guy or some girl makes you feel safe and secure, and you're like, I just got to have this so I can have the security and the safety. For others, it's the, the third idol is approval, and this is mine, by the way. And it's, it's those of us who absolutely need the approval of other people to feel like we have worth and value. So you ever been in a situation where someone is giving praise to a group of people in the audience and you're sitting there secretly going, I hope it's me, please say me. Like, give me a shout out, right? Come on, you know some of you in here, you're like, you're secretly. And then, they, and then they shout out somebody else, they're like, I just want to thank this person. You're like, really? Are you serious, that person? Like, you didn't choose me over them, right? That approval, we want approval and we feel worth and value when people tell us we're great and we're awesome. And the fourth idol is comfort. And it's, it's those of us who so don't want to deal with our pain that we will chase things in life that numb us, right? So whether it's drugs or alcohol, could be sex, it could be TV, could be eating, could be exercise, right? We'll just fill our lives with stuff to avoid ever having to feel pain and discomfort. It's a comfort idol. And each one of us in this room... In fact, every person in this world tends to worship one of these idols. They tend to find their value and worth in one of these idols. And what's amazing is when you read the story of Elisha, here's what it's telling us. The cost to pursue the call is the laying down of the worship of these idols. It's saying, I don't care what the world celebrates as success. I don't care what the world looks to to find value and significance and worth. Right? I'm going to lay that down to pursue what God declares as valuable and significant and worthwhile. And the thing about that is there may come moments and times in your life where God's saying, this cost is so great that everybody around you looks and goes, are you crazy? Like, are you foolish? Can you imagine what people said to Elijah, right? Like, really, you're going you're gonna to give up all that wealth? You're going to destroy that stuff? Like, you're crazy. But there's a cost. What cost are we willing to pay? If God asked you to give up finances, are you willing to do it? If he asked you to move to another place, are you willing to do it, right? If he asked you to give up certain hopes and dreams that you had in your life, are you willing to do that? Single people, if God wanted you to do something where you remain single for the rest of your life, are you willing to do it, right? Sometimes there's a cost to the call. I remember when I was, uh, I went to Bible college now, right? And I'm, I'm in Springfield, Missouri. I'd never been there before, never seen this college. And I get there, and, and I'm really not a Christian. And a couple weeks in, I have this moment. I'm a little slow. So I have this moment where I go, I don't know if I really believe in this whole Christianity thing. Now, keep in mind, I'm at Bible college, okay? And so I, I, I'm like, I better figure this out. I'm giving four years of my life to something, and maybe the rest of my life to something. I don't even know if I believe it. I know my parents believe it, and they told me about it and they made me go to church but I don't know if I believe it and so I was like I got to figure this out 
So after two weeks of just kind of wrestling through and thinking this through, I made a decision. I do, I do believe this. You know, I had, I'd had experience with God. I just knew God was real. And so at that moment, I said, all right, if I'm going to do this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really do it. And I remember going to, to chapel in our school. And if you've never been to Bible college, anybody like, uh, like X-Men movies? Anybody? Superhero movies? Okay. In the X-Men, there's this thing called Xavier's School of the Gifted, right? That's what Bible college is like for Christians, where it's all these, like, super Christians that live together. That's what it felt like for me. And I felt like the one guy that had no superpowers. You know what I mean? Like, everybody else is walking around. They can walk through walls. They have x-ray vision. And I'm just like, uh, I'm just here. <laughs> you look on this side, it's like, oh, this, this dude's been preaching since he was four years old. He's from Texas or something like that. You know what I mean? Oh, this guy already has a recording contract for singing. And I'm like... I've got nothing. I wasn't even saved two weeks ago. And, and I remember just this feeling of like, okay, God, I'm willing to do this, but I feel worthless. I feel absolutely worthless. And I was actually in the back of the chapel, and I remember praying, and I was saying this to God over and over again. I'm worthless. I'm worthless. I'm worthless. And I remember hearing God say to me, yes, you are. I was like, huh? I'm like, I'm pretty sure you're not allowed to say that to your creation, God. And, and, and so as I was stunned by, by God's response, my heart said, yes, you are, but that's why I'm going to use you, because you always need me. You always trust in me. And it, and it was this profound moment for me in pursuing my call of this realization that the cost of the call is to give up chasing other things, right? And there's so many things that I had been chasing and longing for. For me, so much of it was the approval of the people around me, and I felt like I could never get it. And God was saying, if you're willing to lay that down, I will use you. I will use you. There's a cost to the call. And church, I wonder today, how many of us are willing? What is the cost for the call that God's called put on your life? And maybe today he's, he's saying now's the time, right? And, and, and if you're unwilling to do it, if you're unwilling to pay, the, to pay the cost, you may miss out on a life of meaning and purpose. You may live a life half of what God wanted you to do because you're never willing to pay the cost. And by the way, one last thing. The older you get, the harder, the harder this gets. Because the older you get, the more stuff you get. The more responsibility you get. Right? And so for some of you, you're not 19. And there's a lot of things that have to be laid down. The cost for you is much bigger. But nevertheless, I believe that for some of you, God is saying, it's you. You know what I've called you to do. And there's a cost. But if you're willing to pay it, I'll use you. So first thing. The necessity. Second thing is the cost. And lastly, the ability. Question is, how do we do it, right? If you've been in church at all, you've, been, you've probably seen some experiences where people hear a message, they get fired up, and they come up, they're like, yeah, I'm going to do this thing. And then like a firecracker, Monday comes, and they're burnt out, right? And it's like they, they encounter mean people at work, and um, their tire gets flat on the way to work, and they're like, eh, forget this God thing. Like, forget my calling. I'm just over. How do we do this? How do we actually live this thing out? Not just for a day or two, but for our life. If this is a calling, how do we actually do it? And there's something profound that we can learn from the story of Elisha. In verse 9 of 2 Kings, it says, When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Now when I read that, I was like, This seems a little bit conceited almost, right? Like is he saying, I want to be twice as good as you? You know, like, you've got some pretty cool powers, Elijah. You call down fire and some cool stuff. I want to be able to do twice as much. 
And it almost seems a little bit prideful, right? Like, I just want to have these abilities. But actually, that's not what's happening at all. In ancient culture, in their culture, the firstborn son would always get a double portion of the inheritance. So whatever the father had, the firstborn would get a double portion of what everybody else got. So when Elisha is saying this to Elijah, what he's really saying is, I want to be your son. He's saying, I want to be a part of your lineage, right? In that culture, that was everything, what you passed on. Your, your lineage was so much of who you are. It was your identity. And the lineage of Elijah wasn't physical to Elisha, but it was spiritual. So he's saying, I want to be your son. In fact, later on, he references him as father, right? I want to be your son. I want to have the spiritual lineage. And he recognized something that you and I need to recognize right now is the only way that we can have the ability to live out our call is if we recognize that we're a son and a daughter. That's it. In fact, it's interesting, like, I think everybody in life is pursuing identity, right? We all want to feel like we have value and worth, and we, and we live our lives trying to pursue this, and we look for it in all types of places, relationships or money or jobs or, or projects or um, parenting our kids, right? And some of you, your value and worth, your identity is found in being a great mom and so when you're at Target and you're shopping, your kids are acting crazy and other people are looking, you get super angry at the kids at that moment. Why? Right? Because you want people to think you're a perfect mom. It's like, what? We all, we all look. We all find. We all search for value and worth, for identity in all kinds of places. And here's, here's the irony of it. If you do not have an identity that is secured for you, but an identity that you have to earn, you are a slave to it. You'll spend your entire life trying to, trying to earn it, and it will never be enough. It will never satisfy, right? If it's a love of a spouse that you need to have value and worth, they will never satisfy that, and you'll always need them. And one day, either you'll die or they'll die, or they'll inevitably disappoint you, and you'll fall short, right? If it's money that gives you a sense of value and worth, you'll never have enough, and you'll always be in this endless pursuit of getting more and more and more and more and more. See, the reality is unless you have something Unless you have something that is eternal, something that you cannot earn and you cannot lose to give you identity, you will be a slave to pursuing it your whole life, which means you will live a life of selfishness because you'll use people and situations to try to gain value and worth, to gain identity. Elisha realized something. If I have an identity that is secured, one that I cannot lose, if I'm a son, a firstborn son, right? I didn't earn that. You were just born. Mom and dad did all the work, mostly mom, as we learned earlier. And you can't lose being the firstborn son, right? You don't shift around the order of your children. He's like, if I, if I have that, then I can live out my call. I'm actually able to live a life of selflessness because I'm free from the pursuit of trying to gain identity. Church, you realize that. You will never live a selfless life. You will never live a life worthy of the call unless you first identify understand your identity in Jesus. It's a necessity. As the band comes on out, I remember, I remember uh, I, I've been at this church about six years now. And, and before I was at this church, I was at another church as a youth pastor for four years. And, and about, so it was about five years, right, of me doing full-time ministry. I kind of had this, this transformative experience. So I began to to uh, read and was listening, and God was just doing some amazing things in my heart. And, and I remember I was at a conference in Seattle, Washington with one of my friends, and I was in the back, uh, the back of the, 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 uh, 
gymnasium or wherever we were having the conference in, and I was sitting back, and there was a song on called For the Cross, and one of the lines in there says, though our sins are scarlet, you make me white as snow, right? And I've been raised in the church. I, I, I went to Bible college for four years. I've been now pastoring for uh, full-time for six years, but for the first time in my life, for some reason, that understanding of my identity being secured became real in a way that I had never experienced before. And I remember just weeping in the back of, of the back of that room because I'm like, there's nothing I can do to lose the approval of God. So I realized my whole life I was desperate to have identity and approval, and I looked for it in other people. And then when I became a Christian, my behavior got a little bit better, but I still looked for approval from God. And so I felt like I could never earn enough approval from God, and when I behaved well, then God loved me, and I felt great about myself, but when I behaved badly, I felt God didn't love me as much, and maybe he regretted saving me, and I had to try to earn my way back into his good graces, and it was never, ever this feeling of safety or security. I was always afraid of losing my salvation and losing the blessing of God. And for some reason, that moment, as I began to pursue Jesus, the reality of his work on the cross, securing my identity, securing my value and worth, became real for the very first time. And it was like a freedom came over me, right? I wasn't a slave to this endless pursuit anymore. For the first time in my life, I was free to just live for other people and live for his calling because I had the very thing that my heart most wanted. And I wonder today how many of us, you're spending your whole life pursuing something that all along Jesus is going, you've already got it, right? You're looking in all these other places to find value and worth and identity, but all the while I've already secured it and I've already made it. I want to close with the, uh, the reality as the band comes up, they're going to make me sound super spiritual by playing something in the background. Do you know today that Christianity Right, Christianity is based on a son who had everything. He had it all. Within the Trinity, right, Jesus had everything. He had, he had approval and affirmation and worship and glory and honor. He had all that, that he could ever want and deserve. He had it all. And yet, he chose to not only create this world, but he chose to enter this world. And Jesus, a son, was born into poverty, Right? He was born into racism. He was born into, into people wanting to kill him and take his life. He was born into affliction. He gave up all that he had and was born into one of the worst circumstances somebody could be born into. He was born into rejection and ostracization from the community, right? Because the people thought his mom was, was cheating on his dad. And, and, and this is a life that our God was born into. He gave up all that he had, was born, and then he lived a life for 30 years of selflessness. Loving and serving the world. And he goes, he goes to a cross. And on the cross, he gives up his right. He gives up all that he had as a son. And imparts that to you and I. His birthright, he takes it, he lays it down and says, I'm going to give it to them. Right? Because when he looks down off the cross at you and I, he loves you so much that he was willing to give up all that he had and all that he deserved. He was willing to give that and trade that to a people who absolutely don't deserve it and oftentimes turn away from him, right? Look to other things all the time. We do it, yet he gave it all up, his birthright, all that he was as a son. He gave it up and laid it down and imparted it into you and I. So that today, you and I can sit here 
with the uttermost confidence knowing that my value and worth, my identity is not based on my performance, it's not based on how much money I make or how great my marriage is or how awesome my kids are, right? It's not based on how much I give to church or how faithful I am in attendance. It's not based on any of that stuff. It's based on his work. So when you wake up in the morning and you start to doubt and you start to think, man, I I can't do this. I'm worthless. I don't have what it takes. I'm overwhelmed. I'm stressed. I'm tired. How am I going to live out this call? You look to the cross and you remember. You don't need to chase anything in life. Your value and your worth has been secured. And there's no losing it. You can't lose it, right? There's no gaining it and there's no losing it. It is secure. There's never a moment that Jesus regrets saving you. There's never a moment that he loves you any less. He knew everything you would ever do and every thought you would ever think, and he still chose to give up his birthright so that you could have it. You are a son and a daughter. And just like Elijah knew, in order to live out his call, in order to be able to to do all that God wanted to do, he had to know that he was a son. You can know that today. Jesus has made it possible. The question is, do we understand the necessity? Are we willing to go, God, your call is the only thing I need. I, I need to know what you want me to do. Are we willing to pay the cost? Will we lay it down, whatever it takes? And will we remind our hearts, the only way to do it is to remember our identities found in him. Would you pray with me? Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes for a moment. Today, there may be some of us, some of you in here who maybe for the first time, you never really put your faith in Jesus, right? And you've been, you realize like your life has been about chasing identity, chasing value and worth and things that don't ever satisfy. You've looked to relationships, you've looked to money, you've looked to success, you've looked to approval, and it's never fulfilled. It's always left you wanting more. And maybe today, for the first time, you realize the love that Jesus has for you. And you say, man, I I wanna put my faith in Christ. If that's you today, would you lift your hand up? I'd love to pray for you. No one's gonna embarrass you. I'd just love to pray for you. Say, that's me. I want to put my faith in Jesus today. Amen. We see those hands. Anybody else? Amen. Hands all over. That's awesome. You can put your hands down. So thankful. I'm going to pray for you in a moment. For everybody else, if you're here and you say, I want to pursue the call God has on my life. Maybe you've been living out your your corporate call, right? The call that we all have, but, but you've never really received your individual call. And I don't care how old you are or how young you are in this place. You, you would say, I don't know what God wants me to do. And maybe I've been just doing stuff. I've just been living life, but I've never really had a moment where God said, this is what I've called you to do. This is what your life is going to be about. If that's you today, maybe today is the day that God wants to share that with you. Maybe today as we pursue him, as we go after him, as we say, God, my life is yours, he will reveal to you the call that he has on your life. And my encouragement to you today is if you're in that place, that you would begin to understand the necessity and you would pursue him like there's nothing more important than that. Because I believe in this room, those who are watching, those who are listening, right? If we took that seriously, God could use just those in this room to transform this world in a way we could never, ever imagine. There's a necessity of the call. There's a cost. Will we lay it down? And finally, there's the ability. 
His name is Jesus, and He's alive and well. Father, we thank you. We thank you for all that you are and all that you have given us. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who has secured our identity, our value and worth, and has imparted to us a mission, a call. I pray today as we love him more and as we seek him more and Holy Spirit, as you become more alive and awakened in our heart and you speak to us, that today we would leave here knowing this is what God has called me to do. And when we feel weak and when we feel overwhelmed and we feel like we can't do it, that you would strengthen our heart in the truth of the gospel, that Jesus would become more real. Encourage us, surround us with those who would encourage us and help us to remember nothing in life is worth doing. Nothing has meaning and purpose unless it's from the Lord. And for those today who put their faith for the first time and their trust in Jesus, we thank you for that. And I pray that they would go deeper and deeper in their love and their knowledge for him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.